Um, that's out of the Song of Solomon. And uh, it's appropriate to sing part of the song, I think. Let me pull this over. Um, in fact, the last bit there, uh, it says, uh, I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine, is Song of Solomon 6, verse 3. And uh, I happen to uh, have that here on my wedding ring. Let's see if we can figure out how to make this work. Uh, James Avery makes the ring, and you can kind of see it there. It says, oh, the light's bad. Well, anyway, if you read Hebrew, you would read Ritziti li va'ani la, which is out of the Song of Solomon. I'm my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Um, the other interesting thing that I'll forget if I don't bring it out because it wasn't in the lesson, but as I hear the song it's worth talking about, is uh, most Hebrew weddings in Israel uh, before the time of Christ and even during the time of Christ were held during the springtime after the winter rains. And that's the part of the song where he says, for the winter's over and the rains are done and arise my love and come. Uh, uh, this was the time of weddings. We typically have ours in June. They had theirs in the springtime, and that was the weather. You think about Jesus performing his first miracle at the start of his ministry. Uh, that's most likely at the time of year that he did that uh, would be in the spring. Okay, my voice is uh, here. It just doesn't hit all the notes today. I'm fighting a cold. So I don't normally talk like this if you're visiting. We've got a lot of visitors that I got to meet, and it's a pleasure to have you here. This is a biblical literacy class, and what we're about is trying to go through the Bible and understand the basic core things that we need to know to be a biblically literate people. So we start out with basic questions like, where does the Bible come from? And as we go through, we always want to try and address how do we know that what we have here is, is truly what uh, uh, the Bible said. You know, how do we know that these are accurate English translations? How do we know that the Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic that they come from was in fact what may have originally been written? And uh, 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 then what are the principal stories within the Bible that we need to know and understand? What are the principal doctrines that, that uh, we glean from the Bible? So that's what we're about. If you don't have today's lesson, hold your hand up. Um, I think I've got one. Uh, it's uh, Song of Solomon. Hold your hand up. We've got some we can pass out. Uh, the lessons, of course, are available on the website that Eric and Philip do such a good job keeping up. I think they've got the audio on the website as well. And uh, uh, the website is uh, www.biblical-literacy.com. And we urge you to uh, log on sometime and make sure that that stuff works. And if it doesn't, then tell us. That's also a place where you can email. Occasionally we get questions and comments and uh, we try and address those, so don't hesitate to do so. Now, where are we so far in this class? Well, we've made it through the Old Testament up to the Song of Solomon because last week Edward Fudge was here in my stead and taught Ecclesiastes. And I um, don't know if y'all got half as much out of it as he did. He just had an absolute ball. And Monday at work, you know, he's, he's bald-headed anyway, and when he gets red, it just shows all the way up to the top. And I asked him how it went and if he enjoyed it, and he just got so red, and it just started rising, and he just started talking about 30 miles an hour about how much he loved it and how nice y'all are, all are, and if he wasn't at all these other churches, he'd be right here with us. And uh, uh, I thank you for making him feel at home. It's, uh, uh, it means a lot. He's a very dear man and a dear friend of mine. Next Sunday, we have Joel Chernoff. 
um, who will be here with us. Joel will sing two songs out of Isaiah, God willing. Uh, we will be on Isaiah for the next couple of weeks, most likely. I don't think I can do it in a week. And ideally, I'd rather him come a week from Sunday, but it won't work out that way with his schedule. So we may flip-flop the way I'm going to teach things and get into the meat of some of Isaiah and then follow up the next week with some of the background behind the book. I don't know yet. I haven't uh, figured out how to best do that. Um, Joel Chernov, in 1976, a very dear friend of mine and a spiritual mentor, a fellow by the name of Rick Reynolds, uh, had moved to Lubbock, graduated from Abilene Christian University, and was on the cutting edge of uh, contemporary Christian music. Uh, this was back, he was friends with the Brown Bannister and uh, Billy Sprague and a number of people who were Chris Christian at the uh, very inception of the contemporary Christian music scene. Uh, um, the people that found Amy Grant uh, back then and, and some other artists. And I remember going over to his house for a weekly Bible study we had. And he said to me, he said, oh, you got to hear this album. It's by this group called Lamb. I said, oh, I, I'm, I'm here to play it. And he played me two tremendous songs. And I immediately went out. At the time, you couldn't buy Christian music at uh, um, uh, anywhere except a Christian bookstore. So I, we had one in town that sold uh, these things. And I went there and I bought the, the album. Um, uh, and it was tremendous. And I bought several more of, of Lamb's albums. Uh, Lamb had originally, the guys, there were two guys in it. Um, one guy, Joel Chernov. Uh, wrote all the songs, sang all the songs, and played all the instruments. I'm not sure what the other guy did, but he got his picture on it. Um, one of the two were in uh, the Lemon Pipers back in the 60s. Remember my green tambourine? And maybe not. Um, listen while I play. Dorothy remembers. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's the guy who wrote and sang and played all the instruments or the guy who had his picture on the album, but one of the two were in there, I remember. Anyway, um, uh, Joel Chernoff, if you were here a few weeks ago when we were in the Psalms, I played a song from a CD that we had <laughs> illegally made from one of his albums. Um, I say illegally. It's not illegal, I don't think. Um, uh, I, it would have been if I were selling it, but I took the album and I just moved it to CD to play better. So uh, uh, I, I would not break the law. Um, Constable Hickman would arrest me. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Joel Chernoff, I uh, found the guy on the internet. Um, uh, actually, I didn't. He, I found his, his brother is a, a, a Messianic Jewish rabbi uh, in Philadelphia. And um, I know Joel Chernoff still puts out Christian music, a Messianic Jewish Christian music, because I came across one of his CDs while we were in Germany this summer. Uh, and I was trying to rescue a car, um, which brings up a freebie for y'all. Don't put unleaded gas in a diesel engine. It will break down on the Audubon. <laughs> this class is valuable in more ways than you can imagine. Um, anyway, while waiting for the new Avis rent-a-car, because I bought a Mercedes wagon by destroying the engine, I uh, wandered into a German Christian bookstore, which had nothing in English except some CDs, including Joel Chernoff's latest. So I knew he was still making music, so I called him and I said, here's what we've got. We've got the Sunday school class. Um, um, would you come out and play a couple songs from Isaiah for us? And he said, Isaiah? What songs do I have from Isaiah? I said, oh, don't you remember your 1979 album, The Lamb 3? And he said, no. I said, well, you've got a couple songs on there, and they're really good. And he said, well, I'll relearn them, and I'll come play them. 
And so he will be here next Sunday. He will probably bring some CDs for sale. Um, uh, you don't feel obligated to buy them. Uh, uh, I told him we might not have anybody buy any. He's not uh, coming to sell them and, uh, in, in that sense. But he will have them in case you do want them because uh, I, told, I asked him to bring them uh, as a service to folks who might be interested in the music. So Joel Chernoff next Sunday. It's a great Sunday to bring friends. And if you've got any friends that are Jewish, it's a great Sunday to bring them. Because uh, um, uh, like so much of the Old Testament, uh, that's very Jewish next Sunday. So um, that's Joel Chernoff. Now, we've got about uh, 35 minutes to make it through the Song of Songs, which we ought to be able to do without any problem. Uh, if you will work with me, please. My first question that I ask myself as I prepared the lesson is, what is the Song of Songs? Well, in general, you probably got a good idea from Mark Laneford's song. It is basically a love poem. Um, I put S in brackets because some people think it's a, a, a consolidation of multiple love poems as opposed to just one love poem. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, some days I think it's one and other days I think it's probably several put together. Uh, but uh, either way, that's what we've got here in the Song of Songs. This is a selection of, of, of uh, poems, love poems. It's one of the five Hebrew books called the Megillah that, that are read at certain Hebrew festivals. Um, we, we already know that, for example, the book of Esther is read at the festival of Purim. Um, the book of Ruth is also read. Uh, the book of Lamentations is read on the 9th of Abib, which is the anniversary of the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, um, which ones am I missing? You've got uh, the Song of Solomon, which is read. And there's another one that I think I put in the outline. I don't remember what I've said and what I haven't. But anyway, it's one of the books that's read at Passover. It's a unique book in the Bible for several reasons. First of all, the content. The content is very much a romantic love story or poem or collection of poems. It's got some lyrics that are very erotic and explicit. It's got some other lyrics that are very erotic, though not explicit, that are a little bit more hidden in, in what they're saying. Um, it uh, is also unique in that it's one of the few uh, books that I can find in the Bible that really don't have a discernible plot. If it's got a plot, it's really hard to figure out what it is. And scholars have debated whether or not there's a plot for, for literally thousands of years. And we'll get into some of that as we look at the book. In addition to the plot, it's also unique because um, as a literature type, it's one of the few places in the Bible where you read something that's almost... Uh, 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 it, it's... It is a book about romantic love between a, a husband and a wife, uh, uh, between a man and a woman. And uh, while you have love stories, in a sense, in the Bible, you don't have a book dedicated to it like you do the Song of Solomon. Uh, uh, last way it's unique, and, and in this sense, uh, unique doesn't mean in a class by itself because Esther is the same way. There are no direct references to God in the book Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. You can call it either one. Um, so uh, uh, the Song of Songs, uh, that's in general uh, what the book is. Let's go into a little more depth and let's look at uh, some other options here. Uh, first of all, who wrote it? Well, if you read the first verse, the first verse says, Solomon's Song of Songs. That's the way it reads in the NIV that, that uh, uh, many of us are using in this class. See it right there? Solomon's Song 
of songs. Um, and and uh, uh, some people believe that Solomon wrote the book. Um, uh, I'm not sure that he necessarily did. Uh, the, the way it's written in Hebrew, it's translated Solomon's Song of Songs. But the word Solomon's is not a Hebrew Solomon apostrophe S. It's uh, got the Hebrew letter L and then Shaloma, Shloma, which is Solomon. Le Shloma is a, a reference to Solomon. It could mean that Solomon wrote it. It could also mean it had been inspired by Solomon. It could also mean it was dedicated to Solomon. So we don't actually know from the Hebrew whether or not Solomon wrote it. There are some indications that the book was written, if not by Solomon, by someone relatively close to him in time. But there are also some indications that the book may have been written later. Let's look at those for just a moment. Um, some folks, by the way, suggest Hezekiah wrote it. Put that on the back shelf. It's not that relevant right now. Um, the arguments for an early date really come out of uh, uh, Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 4. And if you look at 6, 4, which is right after the passage, I'm my beloved's uh, that I have on my ring. Um, you see, 6, 3 says, uh, uh, I am my lover's and my lover is mine. 6, 4 says, you are beautiful, my darling, as Tirzah. Lovely as Jerusalem. You see that? Now, those of you who've been in the class while we've been studying Hebrew poetry, you remember the key of Hebrew poetry is how things compare one to the next. They put statements together. And you, you might say the same thing just using different words. Well, um, that, this is Hebrew poetry. And you are beautiful, my darling, as Tirzah is very parallel in structure to the next clause. You are lovely as Jerusalem. Beautiful, lovely, Tirzah, Jerusalem. Tirzah was the capital of the northern kingdom until King Omri abandoned it and made Samaria the capital. And so that makes scholars think that this must have been written sometime before King Omri, which is in the 8-something, 850 or so B.C. So that puts it really close to Solomon, within a few generations of Solomon. And, and, and this is a good passage, uh, you know, for this to be written this way uh, after Omri had made Samaria the capital um, would be kind of senseless. It would have said, you are beautiful, my darling, as Samaria, lovely as Jerusalem, but it doesn't. So that's one of the arguments that are put forward for an early date of, of writing for this. Um, there are also arguments for a late date. <clears throat> First of all, in chapter 3, verse 9, the word that's translated in the NIV, carriage. Um, let's go back to the yeah, tablet. Um, oh, Elmo, there we go. In chapter 3, verse 9, it says, King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon. Um, uh, uh, the word for carriage there comes from the Greek word for rain, uh, which is the Greek word for chariot. And the Greek influence probably would not have been way back in the early days. Uh, so to have used that uh, 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 Hebrew writing, in a sense, of a Greek word makes some scholars believe that this was written sometime after the Greek influence would have been strong, uh, uh, whether that's as late as 
330 BC or not, I don't know. Um, but that's one passage that makes people think it's late. A second passage that makes people think it's late is on the next page in chapter 4, verse 13. Um, and this is a, another freebie. By the way, we'll get into more interesting stuff. Some people like this, so we throw this in each time. Those of you who don't, you can sleep, just don't snore loud. We'll wake you up in just a minute. Um, chapter 4, verse 13 says, um, well, I'm not even close, am I? How do I get this on the screen? Whoops. Okay. Let's... Aha. Yeah. 4, verse 13. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates. The word orchard there is paradin. Paradim is from a Persian word. Uh, we get the word paradise from it, by the way, our English word. That's where it comes from. Um, but uh, uh, the fact that this is a, a Persian word that's kind of been um, Hebrewized makes people think this must have been written after the Persian influence. Uh, you know, I, I sift through all of that, and it doesn't affect my faith one way or the other. I will tell you this, though. Um, I think scholars all tend to swing from one end of the tree to the next and, and ignore the whole trunk of the tree. And it seems to me that there's no question but that we've got some very early authorship here because of the Tirza reference. And there's no question in my mind that we've got some later influence because of the Persian and the Greek words. So I look at it, and the consensus opinion I come to is this was probably written real early, but obviously it existed in a verbal form for a time period, and it's been written down over the ages, and I can see people who wrote it down in such a way that they used the words that were common at the time they wrote it. And so if they were using a different word for chariot, they would have written it that way. And uh, so I, I frankly don't have a problem with either way. Next subject. <clears throat> Why is it called the Song of Songs? Well, you know that in the Hebrew, the Hebrew title for each of the Old Testament books comes from the first word or words of the Hebrew text. They didn't come up with new titles. We come up with, for example, the title Genesis for Genesis. But in Hebrew, the title is Bareshit, which means in the beginning, because that's the actual first word of Genesis. So in the Hebrew, we've got here for the Song of Songs, the Song of Songs, Shir, Hashirim, um, and we can break that apart. Y'all are becoming Hebrew scholars, some of you who've been uh, patient enough to sit through this class. Um, you know that, uh, let's get a felt tip pen, Shir is the word for song. Okay? Now, do you see the word Shir in the second word? Right there. If you add I-M to the end of a word in the Hebrew, generally, you're going to make it plural. Very good. Like you have one cherub, but you have many cherubim. You have one seraph, but you have many seraphim. That's the plural, okay? So this is song, and this is songs. And when you put the ha in front, you've, you've basically made it here what a, a language person would call a genitive. You, you've made this the song of songs. And what it means is this, is this is like the song of all songs. When you do that structurally in the Hebrew, when you repeat a word and you make the second one plural with the genitive of it, 
your meaning of all of the songs out there, this is the song of all songs. Um, you find this same usage in Hebrew in some other passages. I'll show it to you in a minute. First, let me tell you that when the Jewish scholars translated this into Greek a couple hundred years before Christ, they used the Greek osma, which is song, osmatone, in Greek that, uh, uh, you know, I, I cheated here. I've used a Greek letter. Um, the Greek N looks like our V. That should be an N if I'm writing it in English. I'm sorry. Asthma, asthmatone, and the O-N is also the of. It's the genitive ending in Greek. So the Greek title means the same, Song of Songs. The Latin, when Jerome translated this in the 400s into Latin, um, he used the Latin words, Song of Songs, Canticum, Canticorum. And some people still today call the Song of Songs Canticles, which is our, Latin, our English word from the Latin word song. Um, some folks call it the Song of Solomon off of the first verse. But uh, uh, either way, you've got the Song of Songs. And as a superlative, here's the sense of it. In Exodus 26, 33, this same structure is used to talk about the Holy of Holies, which was also translated the most holy place, right? So the Song of Songs, this is like the mother of all songs. Okay, this is it. This is the big one. Um, the same structures used in the Bible, talking about the King of Kings, uh, talking about the God of gods and Lord of lords. Paul uses it in Philippians where he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, it's the superlative form. So what we have here in the Song of Songs is the most supreme superlative song that could be written. Now, think about this for a minute. If God is giving us a book that's got the most supreme song, the superlative, the song of all songs that could ever be written, what would you naturally think that song's going to be about? Well, there's a lot that would say, well, that must be a praise and worship song. Or there's a lot that might say, well, that might be a song of, of coming to Jesus or repentance. Um, in fact, what it is, is it's a very passionate love song between a man and a woman. Um, the storyline is very difficult to follow, and that's why I told you before, I'm not even sure that it's really got a substantial plot that goes all the way through. Your, your New International Version has got, um, tries to, to help us find the storyline. And so if you look at your New International Version, it's got two characters in it, the beloved. You've got friends, so I guess that's three characters. That's not the TV show. The beloved. And then you've got the friends, and then you've got the lover, and then you've got the beloved, and the beloved is the woman, and the lover is the man. The beloved is the bride, the lover is the bridegroom. And what the NIV has done is they've put these characters there to help you read the story with a plot and understand who's saying what. The problem is those characters, those lines, lover, friends, beloved, they're not in the original. If you go back to about 350 A.D., the oldest copy of the, of the Bible that we really have put together as a Bible um, is the Codex Sinaiticus. It was found uh, on Mount Sinai at St. Catherine's Monastery by a fellow named Tischendorf. And uh, he didn't have a clue what he found. He just knew it was ancient. 
but it uh, um, was written about 350 A.D. And in the Codex Sinaiticus version of the Bible, they also inserted for the Song of Songs different characters to help you find it. But that was an insertion. That was not in the original. When you're reading your Hebrew, you won't see it in there. And did, did the people place it in the right place as they wrote this? We have no way of knowing. It's one possible understanding, but it's very hard to tell where one person might have started speaking and where another person ended. And so if you have a translation that doesn't have um, uh, uh, those characters set out, uh, uh, you might draw whole different lines as to who says what. And uh, you, you might not be wrong. Um, this, this is one scholar's approach uh, that's been approved by a committee, but it's by no means the word of the Lord. It gives a good, sensible reading to it, um, uh, but you've got a difficult storyline here any way around it. There is the lack of blatant religious themes. Not only is there not a reference to God by name, but there aren't religious themes really set out in the book in terms of religious themes. Okay? Now hold on with me because I'm going to tell you as we get to the end of this why this whole book has an incredible religious theme to it, but it's not set out in the book. All right? Um, the lyrics are very unusual. Uh, some of them are just downright spicy. I've put in the outline, you know, watch what your kids read, man. I've handed them the outline. Now, it's the word of the Lord, so uh, uh, it's blessed. But there are places where the lyrics are very explicit. Um, there are also places where the explicitness of the lyrics is lost in the metaphors. Uh, uh, the NIV study Bible that you have does a good job of dropping footnotes for a lot of those metaphors, saying this is a metaphor. And once you realize it's a metaphor or a picture image of something else trying to be communicated, uh, it does not take a very creative mind to understand what's really being written there. Um, you, you will pick up real quick. Uh, you will also know why there was a Jewish tradition that when rabbis read this book, they had to go wash their hands before they could do anything else because this was tantamount to, to reading uh, uh, something salacious almost, um, yet holy at the same time. Um, the, the impact of the theme and of the lyrics is uh, uh, unique. It, it, let, me, let me say it this way, uh, and, and we'll get into this a little bit more later. Um, historically, uh, um, religious people have had great difficulties with sexuality, okay? Uh, my personal opinion on why is because sexuality is such a driving component of human nature, and yet our religion is one that, that teaches us a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And, and there are certain passions of people that are very hard to control. Uh, for some, it may be a sexual passion. For some, it may be a, a, a one of the other sensual passions of, of eating or things like that. But, but self-control is very hard to, to regulate recognizing the, the passions and drives that human beings have. And, and the reaction of organized religion to this tension, uh, uh, it, in, in the Greek, I'd use the word thalipsis. Uh, thalipsis in the Greek is, it means uh, you, you got something pulling one way and you got something pulling the other, so it's pulling against each other. That area in the middle that's being pulled both ways is in philipsis in the Greek. Uh, it's tribulation. It's, it's uh, tension. It's uh, being pulled two ways at one time. 
the, the way organized religion has dealt with this idea that, that there is such a strong sexual pull and yet there's such a strong teaching of self-control is uh, sometimes to go to extremes. And so there has been a, a, a tradition in organized religion that says holiness, true super spirituality holiness, is basically celibate. It's aesthetic. It's deny your body pleasures of sex, pleasures of food, pleasures of, of any kind, okay? Then the other swing has just been to say, eh, forget what the Bible says. Um, uh, uh, for, forget anything like that. We'll swing way over here to this side and, and we'll just embrace whatever sexuality is there. Uh, I, I was interviewed uh, last week on, on uh, Terry Lowry's radio show and he asked me, about something that I had not heard. He said, Mark, uh, Kathy Adams was on the radio. She was talking about homosexuality uh, on a Christian radio station. And four people called in and two of the four callers said that they firmly believe that God had no problem with active homosexual lives. What are your thoughts about that? And I said, well, funny you should ask because, uh, you know, I'm teaching on the Song of Solomon Sunday and, and I, I you know, am, am dealing with trying to teach some of, of the issues of sexuality in the Bible, but I said the Bible's real clear on, on what it says. And what a lot of people have done is they've either thrown the baby out with the bathwater or they've just refused to even recognize it either exists. And the Bible doesn't teach that. You see, what the Bible teaches is that God has given sexuality to the married couple. And it's a very important part of the marriage. And it's something to be nurtured, and it's something to be honored, and it's something to be enjoyed. And sexuality has got a strong pull on man's passions, but as James Dobson would tell you, that's one of the best ways to get a lot of people into a marriage relationship that they wouldn't be in otherwise. You know, what's the old saying? You, you don't buy the dairy if you get, or buy the cow if you get your milk for free or something like that. I mean, there, James Dobson makes the point that, that it is a, a, a passionate drive that in some sense solidifies a family together and ties a man and a woman together. And so the, the biblical teaching here is not that sexuality is something to be um, shunned. It's not something to be uh, held as, as dirty or nasty or wrong. That's incorrect. By the same token, it's not something to be totally embraced as wide open, free love, uh, 1960s, let it all hang out, groovy, groovy. Um, it's, it's actually something that's going to find its fulfillment and its meaning within a committed relationship of a husband and a wife. And within that relationship, it's not something that's dirty or nasty or wrong. It's something that's holy and good, pure, and supposed to be fun. So that's, that's uh, the, the impact of what we get as we go through this. Now, over the ages, scholars have had different approaches to understanding this book and to teaching it. And I think it's worthy to look at some of these approaches with you this morning. Um, uh, and so let's go through them. The first approach that I've decided to put up here is allegorical. Um, the allegorical approach uh, is very interesting. It was held by Jews. Uh, um, it was held by Jews at the time of Jesus. We know this from reading Jewish commentaries that we have. I don't know if you know this or not, but we actually have commentaries by Jewish rabbis that we can read today. And these rabbis ex lived at the basic time of Jesus. 
And so we can see what those rabbis were teaching. Um, uh, and a number of rabbis opted for the allegorical approach. And the allegorical approach was simple. It said, yes, this is a book about a passionate love between a bride and a bridegroom. And the bridegroom searches out the bride and, and expresses his love for her in very graphic, illustrative terms. But it should be understood that it's an allegory with God being the bridegroom and Israel being the bride. And this is representative of the strong, physical, emotional, committed tie, the love that binds God and His people. And in a sense, that's a fair allegory because as we'll see when we study the Minor Prophets, it's an illustration that God drew. It's also not far to understand why Christians drew the same allegory between Christ and the church. Because we'll read when we get to the book of Revelation that, that Jesus reveals himself as the bridegroom and the church is the bride of Christ. And so the, the intense love, the intense romance, the intense language that expresses this commitment and the joy and the fun and the sharing is one that Christians took, a number of Christians in the early church, Origen, for example, uh, took to be an allegory, something God wrote for us to understand this is the relationship between Jesus and the church. Okay? We, we know uh, it's also not a far stretch, but as Paul says in Ephesians, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So to the extent we can read this and read how a husband should love his wife, we can also read this and understand in allegorical sense as, as a picture image how Christ loves the church. So that's, that's one uh, uh, approach that's been taken in this text, uh, that it shows God's love for his people. A second approach is what's called the dramatic approach. The dramatic approach says that we have here a, a, a story that's being told for pure storytelling quality. Now, Dr. Bob's here this morning, and Dr. Bob and I were in, in New York um, a week ago Friday. And we, we were up there on business. Uh, uh, we weren't just gallivanting, but our business was over, so we started gallivanting. And our gallivanting took us over to an auction house, Christie's. And Christie's was having an auction of some paintings done by an Irish singer by the name of uh, Bono. Um, he's the lead singer for a group called U2. And uh, uh, I say by the name of Bono, that's not like his real name. Uh, his mom didn't name him Bono. She named him like Paul Hewitt or something. But she's dead, and so he goes by Bono. Um, Bono had done these paintings for Peter and the Wolf. And he had done it with a friend of his named Gavin Friday. And Gavin had done the musical score. And they were here at this auction. And so we were sitting about as close as Bob and I are right now to each other. Um, and Gavin took the stage before the auction started. And first of all, he just looks like real artsy-tartsy. I mean, you know, he's got the long hair. He's got the clothes. He's got the whole aura down, okay? I, he's, this is... It's just cool to be in proximity. You know, you just feel cool. He's got the aura of coolness. And so he sets the mood, but he stands up there and he says, and I can't do an Irish accent. Bob can. 
of course, when Bob does it, he thinks he's doing a South African accent. Every accent Bob does is Irish. But rather than have Bob up here, uh, you know, he gets up there with his Irish accent, and he, he says, I am from Ireland, and we have, in Ireland, we are storytellers. And, and I'm going to lapse into a Spanish accent if I'm not careful. So I won't continue. I will put it into Texan drawl, okay? He says, we're storytellers. And I want to tell you a story. It was a dark and stormy night. And he just starts telling this wonderful story. And I was enraptured. And I was thinking about it uh, running this morning when I was uh, running this morning. And, and I was thinking, man, that guy could tell a story. He'd have been a heck of a trial lawyer. Because, I mean, that's what we do for a living is try to tell stories. And, and uh, uh, he was good. Well, some people think that's what this is. This is just a storytelling and these are a collection of stories that were told and meant to be told at weddings and places like that. A collection of stories and poems that maybe the shepherds would tell in the fields and they all made it together. And so when you read this, read it as a dramatic story. I don't know. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. Um, that seems to be what Codex Sinaiticus indicates. That seems to be what the NIV people think because they try to put the characters in there. You know, the friends, the beloved, the lover, okay? So some people take a dramatic approach. This is a story being told. A third approach is the literal approach. Now, this is interesting. This is like a collection of hits, okay? You know, like the greatest hits of 853 B.C., okay? <laughs> These are a collection of songs that are literal, there really were people who believed this, and this really happened, and these were real events in the real life of this girl and this boy. And these people typically understand that the king tried to get into the middle of the relationship because they don't divide it up the way the NIV did. They've got the king in there, and the, so there's this beloved, this woman. She has a young shepherd. She's in love with him. He's in love with her. The king sees the beauty. The king says, I want that girl for my own. He brings all of his kingly powers to persuade her to come to him. She ultimately at the end says, eh -eh, and goes with the young shepherd and uh, says no to the king. So this is, some people think literally this happened. And as a result, some people would take these songs and sing them at weddings. Some would even sing parts of this in the tavern halls as a literal event. Now that didn't fly too well with a rabbi, a little bit about 100 AD, named Rabbi Akiba. I just happened to have his words here. Thought I'd let you see what Rabbi Akiba says in his writings. This is out of the Tosefta, which is a commentary on the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the Old Testament. So this is like a grandson commentary. Um, in uh, chapter 12, verse 10, uh, Rabbi Akiba says, He who warbles the Song of Songs in a banquet hall, and makes it into a kind of love song. Has no portion in the world to come. Spit, spit. No, don't laugh. I mean, that's what, look. Look what the next one says. Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Abba Saul says, In the name of Rabbi Akiba, also he who whispers over a wound, it is written, I will put none of the diseases upon you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you, and who then spits, has no portion in the world to come. And they're pretty clear here on who got in and who got out. And, uh, uh, you know, his, his approach was, 
If you sing, if you take these as literal love songs and you just walk around singing them, you're out of the kingdom, baby. Don't do it. Because the literal approach was not one that uh, uh, he subscribed to. Um, not only was it a subject to a curse from Rabbi Akiba, but the Catholic Church declared it heresy to consider this uh, a literal thing in that sense at the Second Council of Constantinople in the 500s. And so um, the, the literal approach has, has not been one that, that's uh, been graciously embraced, though I'm not sure that it's wrong. I mean, this could have been a literal story. We don't know. These could be literal love songs to be sung on the street. We don't know. Um, now, having said that, some folks think that these were just wedding songs that were sung at weddings. Um, a, a fourth approach is the liturgical approach. It's garbage. I throw it away. Um, it basically says... Uh, oh, this was written at a time where Israel's heritage was pagan. And Israel was writing a, a worship service to celebrate the joining of the goddess Ishtar to the god Tammuz. Oh, yeah, right. Um, I asked some guy who wanted his PhD and wanted to write something provocative. His name was Mead in like the 1920s. And then some other people got a hold of it and thought, oh, yeah, this makes sense. But by 1945, even the people who had gotten a hold of it said, yeah, this makes sense. We're saying, what were we thinking? That doesn't really make sense. So um, the last approach is what I call the didactic, which means teaching, or the moral approach. And this is the idea that the book teaches purity and wonder of true love. Um, obviously, I embrace a good bit of the didactic moral approach. I don't embrace it to the exclusion of the other approaches, but I do think the book clearly teaches the dignity and God's beauty itself in true love. The book teaches, let's be, let me be blunt, that in the true love between a husband and a wife, we see God revealed in some way, shape, form, or fashion. The closest you will get to heaven on earth is a true love relationship with your spouse. It's the closest you'll find. And it's what you need to fight for. It's worth every ounce of energy you have to fight for. It's more important than your rights. It's more important than your feelings. It's more important than what's fair. It's more important than anything else. It is worth fighting for with every breath you've got because it's the closest thing you're going to find. Um, this, is, this is the difference between the extremes. The, the one extreme that just says physical love is, is wrong and, and no physical enjoyment should come. You know, what David Letterman says, more fun than humans should be allowed, you know. Uh, that concept's one extreme. The other's just plain pornography. Both of those are repelled when you find the balance in the middle, the core of what God has to say, which is in a loving relationship between a husband and wife, you will find the closest thing you will to heaven on earth. You'll find a revelation of God. Um, so, points for home. First, marriage is beyond convenience and politics. I've saved a couple minutes on the points for home because I want to drive them home a little bit extra. Um, <clears throat> history has unfolded marriage in unusual ways. There have been great time periods of history where marriage was set out as a union of convenience or a union of politics. 
You would, your marriage would be set up by your parents. It would be based upon who got what or how land was best divided or who owed who a favor or who wanted to be in whose family and endear themselves to whoever. We see evidence of this in history. You can see it watching, uh, we were at Rachel's play of Fiddler on the Roof and uh, you know it's just provocative to Tevye that one of the daughters wants to get married to someone she loves. And then you can see him in the movie starting to think about all of this. And finally he approaches his wife and says, do you love me? She says, what are you, you idiot? Asking stupid questions? For 27 years I've, you all know the song better than I do, cooked your food, done your laundry, whatever, da 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 da. And he says, yeah, I understand that, but do you love me? She says, don't ask crazy questions. You know, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. He says, yeah, but do you love me? Then at the end of the song, she says, well, if that's not love, what is? And that's the, one of the subplots in that movie is the idea that love is something more, and marriage and commitment is something more than just convenience, more than just a matchmaker or parents putting it together. It, it uh, struck England by storm when Shakespeare would write Romeo and Juliet and suggest that, you know, children, that, that, that couples should be allowed to decide who they want to, to marry. And it has not been that long in the United States that we've actually lived an idea that you pick out who you want to marry as opposed to your parents doing it. Um, in, in the biblical concept here, the biblical concept is that within the confines of marriage, you actually have something which should have love within it. It's not to be merely an economic and a social arrangement. There are a lot of people who get married for hormonal reasons, I'm convinced. And then the hormonal reasons change over time and they sit there and they have to assess what are they going to do with their lives and their marriage. The biblical teaching on this is that the marriage needs to have at its core a love that is not only a physical love but is a commitment to love and to each other and to each other's good. That is the same core center of what Christ has for us, His children, His bride. A commitment of love and affection. So um, the point I would send you home on this is that marriage, your marriage needs to be on convenience. If you're stuck in a marriage that you're in for the kids for no other reason, uh, it's worthy of you to take time to think about that. It's worthy of you to take time to pray about it. Um, because it's not what God designed for you. It's not what God designed for anybody. Um, and and it's, it's, um, marriage is beyond convenience and politics. Marriage should be holy. should be pure. And it ought to be fun. And the Bible's teaching that. We don't think about it often, but the Bible's teaching, bottom line, out of this book, marriage ought to be fun, among other things. The commitment needs to be there. The, the purity and the truth, the fidelity needs to be there. But within the context of all of that, you know, I, I'm, I consider myself the most fortunate man on earth because there is no one in the world I'd rather be with than Becky. She is more fun for me than anyone in the world. And, and marriage ought to be that way. And if your marriage isn't that way, you need to work on getting it there because you're being robbed 
and so is your spouse. The physical aspect of marriage is also not merely for convenience and politics. It's God's gift to you. It's a present. It's not, you know, the church for ages taught that sex was only for procreation, so you have kids. That's not biblical. The biblical teaching from the Song of Solomon is the exact opposite. And kids come out of the love. The love is not to make the kids. And so um, understand the physical aspect of marriage as God's gift. And as God's gift, it ought to be holy, pure, and fun. It's holy when it's within the confines of marriage and you don't go outside your marriage for it. And in that sense, it's pure when you put your other partner's needs in front of your own. And you have a holy, pure relationship like that, and it's fun, and it's right. So these are your points for home. The Song of Solomon, a book that's rarely read, rarely looked at, but obviously has got to be part of our biblical literacy. Next week we have Isaiah. Would you pray with me? Lord, I beseech you in the name of Jesus Christ to reach down and to touch everyone here. Lord, I know that everyone who is in a marriage relationship needs to grow in that. There are no exceptions in this room. Everyone in this room who's in a marriage relationship needs to grow. And Lord, I understand that that first involves growing with you and what you have to teach us. I pray that you'll clean out our ears. Lord, that you can take the hardest heart here and soften it. That you will give direction to those who need direction. That you will give strength to those who need strength, compassion to those who need compassion, wisdom. Lord, to those who are astray in their marriage and have lost the purity and the holiness, I pray that you'll convict them and bring them back into the kind of relationship with you and with their spouse they should be in. And Lord, to those who aren't married who are in here or who are listening to this lesson perhaps, I pray that you will uh, build them up. If they themselves have marriage in the future, Lord, show them the right people to be around and show them the right person to marry or persons. I don't understand all of that. But Lord, work in their lives to give them the kind of marriage that would be pure and get them ready for it, for a fun marriage. And if there are people, Lord, who aren't destined for marriage but are destined for celibacy, I pray that you'll build them up in understanding how to support others in marriage. I thank you for all the gifts you've given us. I thank you for the love you have for us. I pray these things in the name of my Savior, Jesus. Amen.